You're listening to the Bourbon and Balance podcast, where we discuss fitness and the finer things in life with the people who find balance between both. Is that Bourbon and Balance? Can you say it? Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bourbon and Balance Podcast, Season 2, Episode 3, with Joe Chabolski. (laughs) We have decided we're just going to pronounce everyone's name wrong, so... uh, Except you just pronounced it right. I pronounced it right, but In the original Polish. Uh, You just nailed it. What is the actual way to say it? Is it Chabolski? Is it like a C-H? Yeah, C-H-E-V. Chabolski. Javolski. Javolski. It sounds like Russian a, when you start a, saying well, like, But it's not good to call... Close. Like, yeah, it's, it's not, Slavic. It's not yeah. right to call... Grandma was Ukrainian. Okay, all right. So it's almost she Russian. She was hot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start. My grandma was hot. <laughs> Is that what we're going to call Javolsky. this one? That should well, be last, the title. Yeah, last, last, Joe's grandma was hot. Last week hot. was more than a fart. This week is grandma yeah. was hot. Oh, boy. Oh, last boy. Last week we started with a story about it's like just Tully clickbait. having an accidental fart poop. Yeah. And now we're starting off with your grandma being attractive. Sweet. We All get right, to cool. talk about me sharding tubes. <laughs> uh... Yeah, we're at 8th day. We're recording. Um, we've been wanting to do a second episode with Joe for a while. Because you are the champ. You know that? Yeah. Still other season than, one other reigning than champ. our intro episode, you are the most listened to person. Well, must a lot to live up got, to with season two. Jordan Sy and Hunter McIntyre. Yeah. Ah. Uh. That's not. Yeah, that's not too that's bad. Not that hard Those to guys do. are schmucks. Hunter, Hunter's, <laughs> Hunter's not very interesting. <laughs> He's very boring. He yeah. sits yes. there. Yeah, relaxed guy. Pretty tame, honestly. Yeah, so we did like a general overview. If you haven't listened to that episode uh, and you're listening to this one, I would listen to that one first because it gives a good background on Joe's history as an athlete um, and as a business owner and kind of where eighth day came from and and all of that uh we're gonna dive a little bit more into basically just the life of an olympian or you know an an olympic training athlete um primarily focused around track and field but probably branching off into other sports as well because there's a lot of connections that you came into contact with um just through the american athletes and outside of american athletes as well um, it was actually episode also, 14. Was Joe's? May 17th really? last year. That's episode kinda cool. 14. Hmm. Um, we could have just done it. Coming up on the year anniversary. Yeah, no, we could have. We blew it. I also want to get, we talked, um, I don't know if I've talked to you about this yet, but I watched Icarus for the first time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Joe and I started Dude, having conversations about sure, that you, as well. You said and, you didn't watch it, right? Cause, no, I watched it. Oh, you did watch it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I thought you said you didn't watch it because you would be so irritated. Watching it? No, that was somebody else. Yeah, someone else said that on that, because the that was podcast. like the Rogan podcast. Oh, was he was talking to, gosh, who now? Who was it? I, the wrestler I, was it? Jordan Burroughs? Yeah, it was the the there, American. A wrestler. lot of people have been talking about it, especially because he was on. Yeah, the Joe Rogan, the guy, the director, yeah, yeah the director of, it, of so. Icarus. If you haven't seen Icarus too, that it's a phenomenal pod, uh, not podcast, but documentary. Yeah, um, incredible, one of the best. So what? I guess just to dive in, what what was your start like into becoming an Olympic trained athlete? 
Ooh, the start was extremely precocious. I, I guess it, it would start with the fact that I was in college, interested in track and field and decathlon, had just been playing baseball, um, and decided that track and field is what I wanted to do. And I remember came home for Easter, said, hey, mom, dad, I've joined the track team and I'd like to be an Olympian. And my parents are great. They're like kind of taking this all in. They're like, okay, well, what are you going to do to accomplish that? And I said, well, I'm going to buy tickets to the U.S. championships and I'm going to go watch people compete in track and field. So that was kind of my modus operandus, like choose to be interested in something and then go to the highest level and see what it looked like. Yeah. Yep. So I did. I went to the, the in Indianapolis, Indiana, went to the U.S. championships. Did and you go by yourself? No, I had a booster uh, friend from uh, Taylor University that went with me who actually passed away about six months ago. Oh, geez. Scott Hutton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he actually was from from Indianapolis and went with me. And, wow. Yeah, it would actually be someone who sponsored me for years uh, afterwards. But sat in the stands, and I would go from event to event, and and I'd watch the, the guys pole vaulting, and then I would look in the stands and see who was coaching who, and take it to the next level and I would see who was winning the pole vault and then I would see who was coaching that person and yep. I would kind of slide over in the stands, make my way over and sit down next to that coach, uh, if not to eavesdrop and listen, but to eventually introduce myself and ask them if I could come and train with them that summer. <laughs> Some random kid from <laughs> nice. college. So did you do hey, this? Hey, my name is Joe. Can I just do workouts with you guys? That's actually exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> I'm curious, like, did you follow this trend earlier in your life as well, like in other things that you were pursuing? Like, I know you, you're really into f- photography. So when you found photography and you wanted to get better at it, did you do the same, like, did you have that same tactic of like, find a really good photographer and then pick their brain on how they got to be? I think I'm drawn towards knowledge. I'm drawn towards learning and understanding hmm. and finding whatever resources there are yeah. to figure that out. And obviously things have changed a lot in the last 20 years because sure. you can do so much of that online. Yeah, uh, The resources are incredible. Back mm-hmm. when I was learning track and field, I had to go to the library and find VHS tapes that I could check out of the what library. Is that? You know what that is? <laughs> VHS. <laughs> Sounds like a disease of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> so I would I would check those diseases out of the library and take them home and watch them on television and then I would take two VCRs uh, and this was actually illegal to do. This was considered like bootlegging. I would take two VCRs and I would copy the footage from the yeah. the tapes over to another one and make make video oh, really? tapes that I could watch to try to learn the track and field events. So yeah, that makes me feel really old. Yeah, sure. Uh, which I guess I am getting there. But um, yeah, so I would literally walk up to these coaches and say, my name is Joe. I would like to learn how to pole vault. Would you teach me? Nice. And they, they would often chuckle or kind of, you know, uh, look me up and down and try to figure out who the heck this kid was. And they would ask me, well, you know, how, how are you pole vaulting now? And I would say, well, I haven't yet, but I would just really like to. And that would also lead to more laughing. But yeah. I, th- I think for some reason, the uh, earnest and precocious nature of it led a lot of those coaches to say, sure, that's fine. And I, and I was great. I'd be like, I would like to pay you for it. And I don't expect this to be free. Yeah. Yeah. At least they weren't just like big timed you and we're like can somebody get this kid away from me yeah <laughs> track and field no is fascinating that way i think that track and field is interesting in its openness to knowledge sharing and and people have that accrued abilities and knowledge that they've gotten over the years and it's 
enjoyable to share it. I think that a lot of the Olympic sports that are more like individual based are that way because Olympic lifting is the same way. Yeah. And like you think of like Fred, like when we interviewed Fred, like any question we asked, he was so excited to answer. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes it was like, no, 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 like let's steer back this way because he would just, you know, start going and going and going mm -hmm. with all of this knowledge. And you could tell he was having so much enjoyment just talking about it um, and being asked about it. I've noticed that just talking to you about track and field, like I know nothing about this sport. This is a sport that like literally growing up knew maybe one or two of the events that, you know, the track athletes would do at school. But at any time I ask about it or I'm curious about it, like, you can just tell that you're excited now at that point to talk about it and to explain it and the ins and outs and all of that stuff. So. Yeah, I think it's, we call it a mountain climbing sport. Like if baseball and football and basketball are sports of fame, uh, track and field and Olympic weightlifting are, are mountain climber sports. Mm -hmm. You're pursuing a goal to get to the top of a mountain and you can climb that mountain with other people. Yeah. In fact, it's easier to climb the mountain with other Much people. Much easier. Interesting. And you might be a different sides of the mountain. You might be a different points in the climb, but you're all still climbing the mountain together and you That's can get there cool. together. So uh, in a weird way, even decathletes that I would compete against at Olympic trials, I often trained with and shared mm -hmm. information with and went to Olympic training center and learned with. And we've, we've formed friendships to this day, even though they are my competitors. Very strange, you know, yeah, that is uh, compared to other sports. I wonder if that translates at all to CrossFit. I know some athletes are fine competing with others and, uh, and like having a training partner who is also a competitor, but like, a, you know, a really close friend. I know Matt Frazier being on Joe Rogan just kind of like openly talked about how he wouldn't train with anybody, uh, but he was a little bit different and i'm sure there was athletes like that that wouldn't sure. train wolf yeah. yeah he's a lone wolf right yeah. yeah but it is i think it is a sport that translates into that same realm as like you know just people within the gym that are individual competitors like they're technically competing against each other but then they're also going to get the best the most out of their training if they are training with each other so it's interesting uh yeah i was at a dinner with all of the gold medalists from the united states of america and the decathlon it was a visa fundraising dinner and so it was Rafer Johnson and Bruce Jenner and uh, Dan O'Brien and all these guys that had won gold medals. Caitlin, actually. But. Now Caitlin. <laughs> yep. yeah. Sorry, sorry. I just want to be politically, politically correct. Oh I'm just, you know, gosh. going at the time it was Bruce. <laughs> yep, that's true. Yeah. We're talking historically, young I, man. <laughs> I had to. He was actually incredibly nice and kind and um, uh, extremely interested in us as athletes compared to some of the other uh former athletes that were there that were wanting to talk about themselves. He was extremely kind and wanted, wanted to know like he was just off of competing and wanted to sit and talk and see what our oh, day was like. Oh, these are like competitors from past years as well, you're saying? So these are all the gold medalists just from, that were alive in the United States oh, of America. Oh, wow, like, that's kind of wild. In the decathlon. Yeah, in the decathlon. That's yeah. sweet. That's really pretty neat. cool dinner, yeah, yeah, to sit around and talk with these guys. So there yeah, are 10 of, us, 10 of us active decathletes and then all these former gold medalist. Um, and Rayford Johnson, uh, who is kind of a man, a man among men, uh, barrier breaker, African-American uh, decathlete, won a gold medal. Um, one of the older ones there. And he and I hit it off and, and talked. And, and again, I have oh, I was always the wet behind the ears guy. I was new. I mean, I, from the, the day that I started the decathlon to the day that I went to U.S. championships was like four years. Uh -huh. uh, from stepping on a track to ending up at U.S. championships for five, five years, five years. And even by the time I was, you know, at these kind of dinners, I was still in the neophyte stage of, of track and field. And so I think, again, some of these guys got a kick out of me. Yeah. Um, and I still had that kind of 
childlike love and passion for it and Naive excitement. sense to yeah. it almost. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so Rafer and I got to talking and he ended up sending me a letter. Uh, Rafer also passed away about a year ago, I think. Uh, but he had sent me a letter to my home uh, several weeks after that dinner. And in that letter, he said a bunch of things of, of wisdom. But one of them was, do not have your goal to make it to the, Olympic trial, uh, to the Olympics. Do not have your goal be to win a gold medal. Have your goal to be to become as good of a decathlete as you could possibly become. Hmm. And if that coincides with Olympic Games or a gold medal, you can count that as a blessing. But yeah. your goal is to get as good as you possibly can. And I think Olympic lifters share that. Crossfitters yeah, share totally. that. Performance sport people yep. can understand that where... You can train with others and get better as a group because you know that that's what's getting you to the highest point on that mountain that you can get to. Sure. And that's the ultimate goal. Yep. You know, if people come along with you or they help you get there and you yeah. help them get there, there's no loss there. So, yeah, the goal is not to hide your secrets and yeah. your tactics and all these things. That's definitely the difference between performance sport and team sport. You know? Yeah. And we see that even in the, in the, uh, uh, CrossFit realm here with with the gym, human beings don't do as well with movement by themselves. Yep, we have been hunter gatherers for long before we were here in the civilized slice of the timeline of the world, and I think that we naturally prefer to move about this planet and to pursue fitness. Uh, together yeah and that that energy that builds with a group of people is yeah, far greater totally. than you can by yourself Definitely. we were just I, we were, I was walking some drop-ins around yesterday and just kind of showing them the gym and stuff and um the guy that i was walking around was talking about how he's having a difficult time because he's constantly having to train by himself and kind of going down that route of conversation and i mean i think just in general like as athletes as as competing athletes here we're blessed just to have other people competing in the same room as us or training in the same room as us maybe they're not necessarily even following the same program but just being in that same space and having energy of another human with you is so much uh i guess more enjoyable than you know being in a garage by yourself you know listening to your own thoughts and not having anybody to kind of like communicate with or even just like think that they're watching you so you go harder like it's interesting. I don't. I. I'm not the type of athlete that would ever be able to train by myself. It, really? That surprises no me. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I also just like can't go 60 seconds without saying anything. So you also used a term earlier that I'm going to call you out on: wet behind the ears. Oh yeah, that's right. We got the idiom for the day yeah. out of the way. There we go. <laughs> nice. What? Uh, you can come in, Michael. Come on in. Hey, reoccurring guest Michael Poss <laughs> is going to join us. Round of applause. Well. Michael Poss. Six place. Wet behind the ears. What is that? Are you looking just, it up right now? Filibustering? Yeah, I don't know this one. It's funny that you were just talking about, uh, you know, the conversation with like training by yourself. Yeah. Because we just had that conversation yesterday. We had been trying to figure out why... When we came back from the shutdown yeah. this summer, I had more kids throwing up in workouts than I've ever had. Like, I never have kids throw up, and we were programming the easiest stuff we ever yeah, had. Like much easier. And then. the biggest thing that I, I we weren't taking into account was that all these kids were going from training by themselves to now training yeah. with yeah. their teammates. So even though we were prescribing things light, like kids were grabbing heavier bands they needed yeah. to grab, like all those kinds then of things. Then their output, their intensity output is so much higher when yeah. they're surrounded by, 
you know, peers. It also crosses with their perceived notion of their fitness, which yes. training alone can can be higher than it actually is. Yep. So they think they're fit. They show up to train with friends. The amplitude goes up. Yes. That's a bad combination. That was yeah. always the crazy thing is like seeing kids that we thought were like monsters, like on the side of the, the football field throwing up. It's, you know, because those kids were definitely working out and they were probably in good shape, yeah. but they were just like getting through yeah, it like everybody else. fitness was much much higher than yeah. Wet behind the ears, I would have never guessed. This is really interesting and gross. This is the drying of the amniotic <laughs> fluid behind the ears of farm animals when they're born. So that that baby animal is so new, he's still wet behind the ears. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, gross. I almost said it was something with a dog, but it's an animal. So maybe it is like a dog. Yeah. Yep, there you go. Wet farm behind animals, wet behind yep. the ears. That's disgusting. So... Anyways, idiom of the day. <laughs> so we travel through time now. You start reaching out to these coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, you build rapport with them. You get invited to some of their camps or to some I of their training facilities. <laughs> you just show up hey, with camp. a lunchbox. It'd be great if I came to that. Thank you. <laughs> it was even I mean far less than that. I was literally like, hey, you live in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. Can I come visit you this summer? Can you teach me how to throw the discus? It wasn't even a camp. This really? was just, can you, you you coach the best discus store in the yeah. U.S.? Can you teach me how? And I'd show up uh, uh, with a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and they would uh, show me now. Fortunately, how'd, how'd you make money? <laughs> selling golf balls in really? the summertime really that I dove in the would, lakes and ponds yeah. of Egypt Valley Country Club here in Grand Rapids right. and uh-huh. I would collect golf balls and I'd sell them on the side of the road there you go yeah made big money really I just bought golf balls off of a guy that does that now yeah like, and, so this was before that was a thing yeah that now the country clubs like sell contracts to the golf ball yeah scuba this guy divers. has a contract yeah and he doesn't go into the ponds though he just collects them at the end of the year in basically like the roughs in the woods oh, and then separates all of them into dozens True. after cleaning them and then sells them exactly what I did yeah yeah and he does I mean I bought like five dozen Titleists for like 50 bucks yeah I do max flies for a buck a piece but my slazengers were more expensive Ooh. you know so that's what got you. So anyway, money. <laughs> that's how I got the money to pay off these coaches. And the cool part was, is I, I would show up and I was extremely teachable. I learned very, very quickly. That was one of my gifts is proper reception and learning. And so they got excited pretty quick. Right? Yeah. A coach loves to see an athlete make change. Sure. And I was mm-hmm. so raw and I was like a blank, you know, whiteboard and I didn't have any bad habits and didn't have anything that needed to be erased. Where did so, you stay? Like when you would go, would you I'd like get a hotel or I'd just oh, okay. stay in my truck gotcha. and do that as well. Like yeah. I'd just sleep in the back of my truck. Yep. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I learned quickly and, and improved quickly and, uh, yeah, ended up training pole vault with Earl Bell and that's where I would eventually move, uh, to yeah. train for years after in college. California, right? That was actually in Arkansas. I was outside oh, of yeah, Memphis, right. Tennessee. Yep. Yeah. And that's right. So that's where I got my first experience with Olympians and what it looked like to be a world-class athlete. Yeah. And that's what I kind of want to dive into is, you know, you're uh, fresh out of college. You're, you know, obviously like a really good athlete in pursuing this new sport essentially. Um, and now you're quickly climbing, like you said, that ranks from, you know, amateur to the highest level, what do those athletes start to look like? Like in hockey, for example, the speed of the game changes. So when you go from high school to college, like the speed of the game is what you notice first Mm. and adjusting to that, not necessarily the size of the athletes, but just the, how fast paced the sport becomes, um, is the main change. What, 
were maybe physically and then just like in general skill wise, what were some of the things that start changing when you get into that realm of professional? I've never thought about it that way. uh, The main difference, and this is where it's going to be different in other sports. You know, I wasn't pole vaulting like against them. Right. Like I, so I, I, I was watching them do their pole vaulting. The main difference is the body of knowledge that they possessed. Hmm. Uh, you walk into the room, start talking to them or they start, you know, sharing, <clears throat> you know, how the workout went that day and talking about what things are going to do and change. And it, it's more akin to having uh, basic mathematic knowledge and then walking into a graduate level PhD quantum physics class. Yeah. Gotcha. That's what it felt like, like sitting in a room being like, Oh my gosh, I run down there and I jab this thing into the the box and jump over. They're literally talking about the proprioceptive feel in their left thumb, you know, at the second moment of fulcrum uh, of the the plant phase when their right foot is, you know, 90 degrees to their, I mean, and you're just like, what? Like, huh? Um, Speaking a whole nother language. Yeah. Yeah. And then three other people are jumping in. 10 events. Sure. And that's, uh, that's probably what. I loved about it though. Is, yeah. Yeah. I love the, I love overwhelming, uh, projects <clears throat> and ideas and concepts. So yeah, I had that for 10 events. Um, but yeah, so that's the first thing is their incredible body of knowledge that they had at that level. Um, and then secondly, yeah, their execution and the way they lived their life was amazing. Like everything about their life was formed and scheduled and written around what they needed to do to accomplish their goals. Huh. And that's a, a secondary big wake up call of like, you have no idea what you're doing. Like you don't even know how to sleep. Right. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Cause like with 10 events, you can essentially just train all day, every day. Mm-hmm. You're and not running out of things, things like, to train. I mean, yeah. An hour of training for each event <laughs> could potentially be, you know, a yeah. full day by itself. Obviously, unusual. you wouldn't do that. But when you look at the Cathlon, again, this would be a good example. When I looked at it, I saw 10 events. Mm-hmm. My first great coach looked at it and saw three regions. Yeah, speed, that's what power, I was going to say is you break technique. it up. Yep. Yeah, so a day, you know, they would be training speed. Well, that speed covers a hundred, the long jump, the hurdles, the pole vault, right? Like still helps with development with the shot or the discus. Sure. Yeah. Um, When you're training power, you're training the discus, the shot, the javelin, the high jump. Um, So you didn't necessarily train uh, like specifically for each event. I'm sure you did at like at certain points throughout the season or leading up to an event, but you trained in regions like you're saying? Yeah, so you'd, you'd train acceleration development and speed development of your running mechanics and your velocity capacity mm-hmm. that covered all these events. Yeah. Now you had technique of the hurdles. You know, you had to do hurdle technique. Yeah. So you had power training to for the throws. Uh, you know, you would literally were throwing everything. We threw everything you could throw for power development. Really? And bounding and jumping. Mm-hmm. Well, that covered, you know, Then, but then you still had to throw the discus. Yeah. So technique and power strength, uh, endurance, that training were separate. Um, so the technique work would be when I was throwing discus, mm-hmm. when I was pole vaulting, yeah. when I was throwing javelin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that probably wasn't the bulk of the day. Just general development. General development of speed, strength, power, and yeah, endurance. 
Or just skip endurance because it's <laughs> bullshit. Which we did. That's exactly what we did. <laughs> Says yeah. the weightlifter. <laughs> yeah, we did too. We didn't train for the mile. That was too, so too far. So I, uh, I mentioned that in class the other day. I used that as an analogy um, for warming up. We had a short sprint workout. And, you know, I made the analogy that the shorter the workout, the longer the warm up. Um, and I talked about how you guys didn't warm up for technically your longest event, right? The mile. We warmed up for it with all of the other events. No, so we that we trained for the or mile. Maybe didn't with train. the four hundred. Yeah, okay. So we never trained for any long distance running. We trained up to the the four hundred meters because everything in the decathlon is power speed based, lo- yeah. smaller than four hundred. Yeah, and there's one event that's a mile. Uh, but that's different than warming up for it. We yeah. warmed the heck up for so it. So you didn't train at all to run four times the four hundred, like you know, a mile is, is four X what a 400 is. Mm -hmm. How do you not train for that and still do well? It's hurts excruciatingly bad, but because it's the the last event, it's the last event. Screw it. It's a guts event. Yeah. So the amount of benefit we could get for training for it, like let's say we trained a bunch for the mile, the benefit we'd get in seconds that we would drop in the mile and everything was worth points off a scale, a book that we could look at and see how many points it's worth. Uh, the amount of benefit we could get, in points from the mile, which wasn't a highly valuable event, uh, was not was not worth putting out in that much time that would deter from our hundred and our long jump and our hurdles. Uh, yeah. So it's pulling points from it's pulling from points other away. Events. Yeah, you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, in that realm, not at that level of performance. Yeah. CrossFit is that how all change that a little bit? But is that how all decathletes? approach that or was yes, that just like at the national world-class level nobody nobody's training for the mile trains for the mile no Mm-mm. that's so Wouldn't interesting no idea yeah i, I would either. assume especially seeing you know like matt frazier be able to do so well on the trail run and then immediately pull whatever like a 605 deadlift yeah, yeah. or yeah, whatever but it was those guys they don't know how to run crossfitters don't know how to run. like so you're comparing apples to oranges yeah. there. like, sure. like yeah. that's very different than trying to get on a track and run a 420 mile which yeah. is yeah, you know, what I ran, and I hey, wasn't even the fastest. Hey, swag, 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 swag. <laughs> Blaze, that was my world ranking. Oh, Four twenty, nice. also weed, weed day, <laughs> April twentieth. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. So Joe okay, just so jumped on a podcast with yeah. a couple of children. Here. <laughs> I wonder what all the blue haze was here. In the haze in the uh, what a guy. Uh, okay, so so do you think that you had mentioned this just now? Do you think CrossFitters would benefit? Um, from learning how to run properly. It's amazing to me that CrossFitters spend as much time as they do learning Olympic lifting technique. Yeah. And then you look at the world championships of CrossFit yeah. and how much running is in it. It's literally like a large percentage of the events include running. Yeah. And how little training, if none at all, yeah. they have. In yeah, I think they're mechanics. getting in, like the you know the individual pros are now getting into that realm of like tapping into that knowledge base. But it's definitely not. It's hard though because everything to qualify never contains yeah. running almost at all. True. Yeah. I mean, regional. So I think might it becomes that running, balancing act of like, yeah. like, how good am I? How, how much do I have to double down on the stuff to get? Well, there? and like, how much time are you able to distribute? Uh, to everything else that you're working on. Yeah. So maybe it's also similar to how not training for the 400 or for the mile was allowing you to do better in other areas of the 10 events. Whereas your knowledge or as your time for learning how to run might be taking away from 
learning how to do better things or like unless you're in the top 10 and you want to win then running would become an extremely important thing to do regardless because you know you're going to make it yeah if you know you're going to qualify and you know you're going to have to be running especially like the distances that the games puts them through so imagine you know Tully like you imagine going to the CrossFit World Championships and watching all of the athletes do their Olympic lifts the ugliest Olympic lifts you've ever seen. And they're doing like 30 of them in a row, mm-hmm. l- like like a first day Olympic lifter. Like the 2013 CrossFit Games. And you show up and you're like, wait, these are the best in the world and this is how they yeah, are doing yeah, their yeah. Olympic lifts? Well, that's how I watch it as a runner. I'm like, wait, these are the best in the world and this is how they're running around yeah. the track with their feet sticking out to the sides, their hips behind them and their posture terrible yeah. and their foot strike in front. Like, so you'd see efficiency gains that could be made and that's mm-hmm. it, but that's another whole nother topic. Sure. No, that makes sense though. And especially if it's like, if there's still within the sport, low hanging fruit for these athletes to just be able to make quick fixes on like that. It's not going to take a ton of time for them to, to learn that kind of stuff. Sure. It's probably what those coaches seeing you first come in saw, mm-hmm. you know, like, Hey, this guy like does all right with this and he's not good at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. You yeah. know, like I, I can't imagine what it would be like for a coach. Yeah. Same, same idea, you know, like coming into a CrossFit gym, like, Hey, I'm local runner, Joe, you know, I, I did marathon running at the highest level or whatever. Do you want your CrossFit athletes to do some some running training with me? And a lot of people will probably say no because running is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on the audience that you're trying to pitch to. But So you get into, you know, you get into, let's just uh, maybe go from, where was your first, like, I guess, residency as an athlete? Was that was that at Arkansas. Bell? Yeah, that was at Bell Athletics. I decided that the pole vault was the hardest event in track and field. Or, well, yeah, I mean, in track and field and in the decathlon. Okay. And therefore, why not, why not go there to master? This was the great, you know, naivety as well. Uh, go there, I'll master that, and then I'll move on, move to somewhere else for the next events that I need to learn. You know, <laughs> kind of this idea of moving to the coaches. Yeah. Uh, and ends up you don't master pole vault in a couple of years. Yeah. Um, it's very, very difficult event. So I lived there for years. I ended up getting a coaching job at the university, mm-hmm. uh, which is always synergistic for track and field athletes because that gets you access to a track and facilities. And, sure. And um, money. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit of money and, and just, yeah, you know, traveling to events and, and it's always a nice synergistic uh, partnership. So got that job, uh, met a throws coach. Uh, that was really good. So I had a few part, you know, pieces of the puzzle together. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I was able to go from uh, entering the world of track and field to to gaining some world class status yeah. while living there at the pole vault. Facility. And how long did you live there for? Ended up uh, being there for seven years. Wow. Is that what ended up being your like biggest like gain, like from your first few competitions to at your best? Like, what what were the things that you went from like? your lowest scores to like your highest scores. Like what was the biggest margin of increase for you? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly pole vault, right? I mean, I think I jumped like nine or 10 feet in the pole vault, my first ever track and field meet. And then I would eventually jump. That's what like high schoolers, same idea. High school girls. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, Oh really? Get get up there. Pole doesn't bend at all. And you like just spin around and like throw it and fall. Yeah. Yeah. I did pole vault. Helicopter. Did you really? Uh I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. What a guy. Yeah. So yeah, that's the same here. Yeah. I, I jumped, yeah. Like as high as my daughter did yesterday. 
in the high school meet <laughs> in her first time pole vaulting. I, we, she and I jumped about the same, but then eventually I jumped 17 feet in the pole vault. So Almost that's, doubled that's it. Pretty big gain. Oh yeah. my gosh! And like getting above, like I think I remember. Is it 14? Like, is yeah. like the in college is like the really good number. What's what's like a? I felt like that was in high school. The guys. Like a D1 college. Like 12 6 athlete. is minimum qualifying for a D2 stage. That's also a moving target, right? The pole yeah. vault's seen a lot of gains in the last oh, really? decade. Just two, with technology? So. Just with skill. Progress. Yeah. Like, yeah. As sports you know, do, it's made a ton of progress. And I mean, knowledge being available. Yeah. That's what our pole vault coach at Granville says that like the internet is amazing because you can get a hold of all these people that are just True. like, hey, here's these free drills that I do with my athletes. Yeah. And like somebody who was a like, an average pole vaulter can be an amazing coach if they just continuously. So no like, VHS, no VHS tapes. Apparently not. not easier. Yeah. 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 So yeah, there's been a lot of progress. Yeah. In that. What's the world record right now? Do you know? Or didn't we Mondo watch it? Duplantis. Right? Or were we like, it, it happened like a year ago? Not that long ago? Yeah. Not that long ago. Yeah. Mondo Duplantis, a youth phenom, uh, broke it at yeah 20 foot. Two and three quarters, something like that. I remember our, our coach showing us VHS tapes of Sergei Bobka. Yeah. Right? Was the, yeah, he was the, the man. best guy for like forever. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He, he pushed the sport of pole vault way beyond what anybody knew at the time, mm -hmm. like by feet. He was feet ahead of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my coach was, uh, an All-American at Northwestern. He's a guy named Jim Fast. He's mm -hmm. literally a Korean guy that was like in his late 40s, and he looked like he was probably like early thirties or maybe even twenties. Really? Like man looked like he was going to live forever. And yeah. he was like, yeah, like almost 50 and could still do like insane bounding jumps and like sprint faster than anybody. Yeah. He took immaculate care of himself and he could still, when he was teaching us the pole vault, like just get up there and go like, so speaking of, speaking of <clears throat> taking immaculate care of yourself, I want to get into like what, because you eventually lived with a bunch of, of yeah, so I eventually moved to California. Yeah, uh, just athletes in general. It was oh really? Yeah, high it jumpers, wasn't just sprinters, throwers. Yeah, it was everyone. So they were specific to just those events, and then you were the. Yep. So some of my buddies that I knew had had kind of moved on. They were out in California um, and in Texas, and then this opportunity came to train with Dan Paff, who was the best track and field coach in U.S. history, one of the best. And that was going to happen out in California. So I got an invite to come out with that group and train. There was about 23 athletes. Um, How many decathletes? Just me. You were the only one? Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah. But, I mean, I would go throw discus with the American record holder yeah. in the discus. Like, Susie Powell. By... I would high jump with one of the best high jumpers in U.S. history. I'd pole vault with the American yeah. record holder in the pole vault. So It sounds a lot to me like the way a lot of MMA guys are handling their training now, too. Yeah. Like bringing in That's like true. world championship boxing coach and then and or like going and, and traveling to like, yeah, uh, the, the wrestling Olympic training center. That's yeah. what like George St. Pierre did that for a long time with mm -hmm. Canada is he would go to the wrestling training center sure. and then be an MMA guy, and karate like, guy that would just hold his own just as well. Perfect. So. Try and perfect or try and surround yourself with all of the, you know, the best in the world of each facet of that sport. And which gins, brings us back around to what makes people the best in the world is capacity to learn. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a single dumb Olympian I ever knew. Uh -huh. um, they were brilliant human beings that were gifted at pursuing knowledge and learning and running their lives and their bodies like a business. Hmm. Um, a business that would become, you know, one of the greatest businesses in the world, right? A gold medalist. Yeah. Like, so that meant that mentality, that mindset, 
you sit in a room full of people that are at that world-class level, it's dynamic and fascinating and there's no small talk and it's uh, very, very high IQs and <laughs> almost like yeah, a form of Asperger's, right? Nobody's, nobody's speaking, you know, blowing smoke up, uh, you know, each other's skirt. It's just yeah. it's the truth and speak it honestly there's no uh, progress made from lying to yourself or to others yeah. it's just That's a what, very like, honest honest room yeah people probably think like perception from movies and media and stuff that like your throwers are gonna be like Ugh, I throw a big rock yeah. like kind of guys <laughs> yeah. but like every mm-hmm. like uh, it's almost like 100% like throwers become amazing strength coaches there's like all these throwers that obviously have to do a ton of strength work and they have to do this very fine training program to get them to where they want to get to and then they carry that over after their careers i know so many former throwers that are brilliant brilliant strength coaches because it needs to transfer right it's you know transfer of training and sport right it need the, the the training that you do that's outside of your sport your hope is that it transfers to what you're doing so yeah. if you're going to throw the disc as far whatever you train for power needs to transfer that's where basketball and football and baseball they've got so far to come in their learning and understanding because they don't understand how to transfer that to the court or the football field yeah sure. and that's They're always just... a weird thing that we juggle as well like at the high school level just with like the kids that i work with is how much do they need just general preparedness and how much do we actually need you know like Sports special specific. preparedness yeah mm-hmm. you know specific preparedness you know because a lot of the kids haven't done anything so it, it can be difficult uh i feel some of those coaches on there like figuring out you know one coach to like you know the ncaa like uh olympic sport level you know a lot of those coaches are like less than thirty thousand dollar paid gas that are trying to figure out this incredibly complex puzzle yeah but it is always amazing how like you know athletes who have competed at the highest level in track and field seem to like pick that up better than most sport yeah at the end of the day you're the ceo and the president of your company right at the end of the day you know you hire a a coach and you know hire in quotations i mean you 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 work with a coach in a group that you believe in that you think their training philosophy is the best in the day (laughs) it's you you're making the decisions on how that business runs and how it sleeps and how it eats and how it uh you know trains so uh yeah that those group of olympians are dynamic incredible creative human beings in general I mean, I can't even, I could begin to list all the different projects and building things and ideas and inventions that came out of those groups because uh, that's how their minds work. They solve mm-hmm. problems and come up with creative solutions. I would, I would bet that, you know, like the top 1% of any sport, for the most part, those athletes are, are probably pretty intelligent. Um, I mean, to get to you, and I, I know that there's probably like outliers and whatnot, but even in a sport like, let's just say football, like a wide receiver, the best wide receiver in the world has to have some, you know, intellectual level higher than the people that he passed for the most part, because it doesn't, it's not just easy to get to that level. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of learning that has to go into it. There's a lot of self-discipline that has to go into it. Um, and then just like the act of, being able to ask for help uh, and learn from other professionals in order to get better at your profession, I think it, it it's not it wouldn't be easy for somebody with a low IQ with a low IQ to be able to do that kind of stuff. Sure, I would agree with that. I think the difference in a performance sport is that you you're not competing against another team or sure. athlete, so you can't you can't fake them out on the field totally. and score a touchdown. 
you're competing against history. Yeah. You're competing against time and gravity um, and weight. And it's an extremely brutal judge. And so the honing of that sword yeah. towards a performance sport becomes the pinnacle of that example. So yeah, without a doubt, there are wide receivers that spend the whole week reviewing the coverage footage of the next team they're going to sure. play. And they benefit from that. And so I would, so I would agree only then saying that performance sport takes it to the yeah. ultimate level yeah. of hundreds and hundreds of, <clears throat> you know, well, sometimes a hundred years of breaking down a movement to throw something or jump over something or run a distance that everyone has been trying to do for a couple hundred yeah, years. It's the same thing. And the same thing. And then perfecting <laughs> that and getting your body to perform at yeah. its absolute peak is a whole nother level totally. of obsessive compulsive pursuit of a certain performance. Yeah, I agree. And even just listening to, uh, like we were talking about your daughter Rowan and how, you know, you're, she's still learning the, the sport of pole vaulting and hearing you talk about the math behind it and the physics behind it, um, and how to get better at, you know, the placement of the stick and the balancing of, as you're running the velocity of the stick coming to the ground. And like the, the, you had said that it, the, the pole feels not the stick, the pole feels, um, like it, it's weightless at certain points. Mm-hmm. If it's done correctly, that's, that's a topic that is very difficult to understand and get better at if you don't have the, a certain IQ level <laughs> in order to understand that in general. I once spent an entire weekend on the rotate. It was called the rotational kinematics of the pole vault. Yeah. And it was an entire weekend presentation of the rotational kinematics of pole vaulting. In mm-hmm. other words, how the human body rotates around the axis of a pole vault pole really? at the different phases. Yeah. yeah. That was at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista. It's and wild. like three people presented on this. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, not yeah. like run down the field, cut left, cut right, catch a ball. Correct. That's much different than than that. So I do. And how much yeah. do you think that level of knowledge helped you? That that's also another interesting thing that I feel like uh, people at that level can take that much knowledge and mm-hmm. process it. But a lot of other people that are average athletes or even like good athletes but don't break into the elite level are uh, like paralysis by analysis from learning so much. Yeah, there is a balance. I definitely recognized early on that my ability to become a world-class decathlete would probably hinge upon some capacity for knowledge and intellect. So I, I learned better than my competitors. They were better athletes than me, and I learned more than them. Mm-hmm. So that you can play that kind of warfare game yeah. of the mind, and I definitely fit in that category. But I will also never forget my throws coach, Dave Rodley, who uh, said... As we we were recruiting athletes, and he was kind of showing me the ropes of recruiting when I was coaching, and he was like, "Well, you got to make sure that you recruit people at the right IQ level because if they're too smart, then you can't understand what they're saying, and if they're too dumb, they can't understand what you're saying. So you got to find them in the middle. <laughs> the balance. Yeah. yeah, that's funny. There's some truth there too. Sure, yeah. definitely. That's wild. So living with all of these athletes, right? Like, what was that like? Because you guys have you know, uh, these IQ levels that are really high, you have all, you know, your body is your business mm-hmm. and you're treating that, uh, you know, essentially to perform at a world-class level. Like what was, what was sleeping like? What was eating like? What was, uh, like your daily routines like? And yeah. what were the differences <clears throat> between each one of those? I mean, you can only athletes? control so many variables in performance. You have, 
your sleep that you can control. You have your nutrition that you can control and you have your training theory. Those are the three things you control. And then the largest component that you can't control is your genetics. Sure. Right. So you control those three that you can. So sleep was insane. The, if you're going to not cheat at sport, then sleep is your drugs. Hmm. That is when the hu- human growth hormone is produced, testosterone levels mm-hmm. rise. Your body's natural hormonal levels are most influenced by how well you sleep. And hormonal levels influence how quickly you recover sure. from the training stimulus that you gave yourself that yeah. day. So sleep is probably the primary. Um, secondary to sleep, then, is what materials do you give your body to do the rebuilding at night sure. when you're sleeping? Yep. So the construction materials are the food that you're eating. So are you going to give yourself crooked nails and warped two-by-fours, or are you going to give yourself, you know... Ryan did yeah, last night. Best of the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had a few beers, okay? It wasn't like I was getting wasted. And a wasted. cheeseburger. <laughs> well, yeah, but that was made with grass-fed beef. All and, right, all yeah, right. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, so sleep. Uh, we all we're sleeping on really nice beds and had done a lot of research to figure out what beds were the best beds for us to sleep on. Yeah. We were controlling temperature. Did somebody have a, like a spreadsheet. <laughs> I was the guy. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it was definitely say, Joe. Definitely me. The whole crew, like all the Olympians, like walk into, you know, like an art van and they're all just like, uh, this one, I give it a nine out of 10 <laughs> yeah. for, just like, for yes. support. And uh, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be a fortunate fool and, and be training with the, the, the greatest, you know, athletes in the U.S and the bed makers were coming to them. I'll put it really? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of how it is now, actually. Like yeah. all of these new, you know, like athlete-driven mattress companies are now reaching out to CrossFit athletes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Saying, hey, use this. This will help you recover, but also, you know, put it on Instagram and get it out there. Uh, CrossFit is the most sleep-dependent sport on the planet. Yeah. There is no sport that ba- where the balance of your progress is, is more equated in your recovery than CrossFit. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so beds, and then you had things like temperature, sleep temperatures, uh, grounding. So grounding the beds. Um, uh, many of the athletes had beds, you know, because you're sleeping in a house, and a house is on different levels, and you're not on the ground. <clears throat> but humans have slept on the ground for millennia, and that's the norm. I remember um, hearing this for the first time. Mm-hmm. This is like the third Sounds time like I've voodoo, heard this, but, but it, yeah, it's like... Sounds like witchcraft, like a tinfoil hat story. But Except it's... when you're at that level of trying to get the most out of your body's performance, yeah. and then you really start thinking about it, and then you also end up eventually noticing the results. And again, we're noticing you know little tiny movements in the yeah. needle that people don't pay attention percentage to. Percentage over percentage. Yeah. As a lifestyle, yeah. uh, you, you can tune into those things. But yeah, negative ion grounding is a thing. It's very real. Like yeah. We exchange ions with the ground and the earth. Uh, because we slept on the ground for 99% of the existence of human beings on this planet have slept on the ground except for modern times where we sleep in a bed on a floor above ground and so as part of that recovery the athletes would have silver uh, like their their fabrics would be lined with silver and then they'd have a cord coming out the end of the fabric and that cord would go out the window and down and would be staked into the ground six feet into the ground so wild yeah so their beds were grounded and yeah could exchange ions and uh, yeah, that was a real thing and not kooky yeah yeah everybody did it so, so. sleep and then what was your food like because i've talked to you about this oh before gosh. and I, just knowing you as a as a human obviously like the amount that you can eat and still be i mean you're very lean just naturally 
um, in order to train for hours and hours a day, like you have to be just pumping fuel into your body at all times. Yeah. And everybody's a little different. The decathlon was certainly very demanding, sure. um, more so than other events, but, um, yeah, my food intake was insane and living with 12 athletes that were very food driven yeah. and supplement driven was hilarious. We, we ended up in this giant mansion in Stockton, California. Uh, like the home of the uh, like foreclosure capital of the world at the time uh, it was where we were living and we had we had to move our training facilities we were training on an island called Twitchell Island in California and then the real estate bust happened we had to move off that island and the real estate mogul that had us kind of set up in a training center mm-hmm. folded so the city the city of Stockton California gave us an old military warehouse that was basically like three or four football fields large of a building with nice. these giant doors that opened up. So cool. On the it was called Rough and Ready Island. It was a military island in huh. Stockton. They gave us that building train and to finish up the year going into the Olympics. So then we all moved to Stockton and got a giant house and lived together. So that was the majority of the living together that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and the house that we got was just giant mansion and it had this pantry, you know, the size of a living room and all the shelves in the pantry, we put tape down the shelves and divided them for each athlete. Oh, really? Yep. And then you could, it literally looked like walking into a GNC, like each athlete had all their supplements, you know, <laughs> yeah. on the shelves and all the specialty you food. You guys have like day. 10 refrigerators? We did have a couple refrigerators. I can imagine that's what like the majority of the drama in the house revolved around. Joe, like you touched my whey protein. Yeah. <laughs> I know you did it. You know what's funny is never like people you don't even were like so. EAS. <laughs> <laughs> people were so particular and and like nobody would cross that line. Okay, like, yeah. okay. Was that was like, like the don't mess with people's performance. Don't touch that made me just think like that'd be a great show, Olympic House or yeah. something like that. Yeah, like a Big Brother style. Can, like oh my gosh, because the egos and the things going on there. I do have better. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, everybody yeah. is Everyone an alpha. had a huge ego. Yeah. Everybody's an alpha. You have to be. I always tell people that ego and arrogance are two different things. We think ego means arrogance, but ego isn't. An ego out of check is arrogant. Mm-hmm. But an, if you're going to be the best in the world at something, yeah, you have to have one of the biggest egos sure. around. It's just how you check it and how you qualify it and how you filter it that determines if people think you're an a-hole or not yeah which happens for sure it's hard to check an ego that 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 big but um i was fortunate in my career as a track athlete and now as a crossfit owner to not have to deal with with arrogant people nice but egos are necessary you still got to have oh yeah absolutely so how many calories do you think you were consuming a day so towards the end of my career as i really started to get more into understanding that side of it and having a coach who understood it we realized when i went to the olympic training center for a testing protocol where they they do all the kind of stuff that you picture from a rocky four movie where they're like testing the athletes and have cords and wires all over them. We would have sessions. We would go do that kind of stuff. And then one of the side things was getting body fat tested in an actual like dunk tank. Yeah. The the real hydrostatic body fat testing. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely, yeah, blowing all the air out of your lungs yeah, to the very last degree and then put in the water. going underwater. It's <laughs> crazy. You have no oxygen at all, and yet you're sitting in a tank underwater. Yeah, that's wild. Um, with tubes, like, in your mouth. Um, so 
doing that, my body fat came back at 5.3%. And that's an extremely accurate test. Like anytime you hear football players like yeah. saying they're at 3%, that's actually baloney. Like, yeah. The truth is. Somebody is, was, said DK Metcalf was like negative yeah. 2%. Yeah. Yeah. Remember? Do you remember? Uh, wasn't it Ronnie Coleman was on Joe Rogan? <laughs> yeah, he like, said he was. One time somebody told me that I had negative 2% body yeah. fat. It doesn't even make and sense. I just walked around like that. Yeah. And Joe like tried no. to call him out, but yeah. he's just like, ah, I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. Basically, under five, you start having yeah, problems like hormone issues and stuff, and myelin like, sheath, yeah, like yeah. muscle tissue issues, yeah, like nerve issues and things like that. And as t- as much as I was training, um, one of the ne- uh, cool things that happens too is when you get towards a peak, like a performance peak, like a U.S. Championships, Olympic Trials, or Olympic Games, your body will naturally lean out. Like there, there's changes that happen to your body that have nothing to do with your training, that have to do with literally the psychological honing towards a, a towards a, an event. You Where, told me about this when I was cutting weight, or like when we would be like uh, getting ready for regionals. Like I would just naturally lean out, but I wouldn't, I, at first I was like, what? Like that doesn't even make sense. But then like leading into like when we went to Nashville, it was like, I was six or seven pounds lighter than my normal training weight and I hadn't changed anything. In fact, I probably was eating more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and cortisol levels go up. That's why athletes that are heading into a big competition are complaining more about joints hurting and things of that, mm-hmm. uh, nothing's actually changed in their injuries or their body, but the cortisol levels are higher. Yeah, that's so why I always feel awful going into competition. Yeah. Yep. So my coach was like, Hey, we got a problem here cause you're a 5.3% body fat. And by the time we get to Olympic trials, you're going to be in a problem zone. So we need to start eating more. So at that point, I already ate a lot, but uh, every week we would add a couple thousand calories to my daily Just intake. a couple thousand. <laughs> Quick couple thousand. Yeah. And I got up to around nine, ten thousand 10,000 calories a day. Yeah. Um, what was your staple to increase calories? Like, did you have like a... It's got to be fat. It had to be I was going to say like, like a nut peanut butters butter. Nut butters and oils. Uh, yeah. I have, nut, I have nutter butters in my <laughs> shopping yeah. bag. There we go. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. I can see them right now. Oh my gosh. Um... Yeah, that's that was a throwback. I haven't eaten those in forever. But yeah, we would. I mean, it would be you know you're basically like mass gainer shakes. Like you have yeah. like the caloric intake shakes. Yeah. But then breakfast was huge. Like incredibly huge. You ask what it's like living with athletes. It's like a breakfast restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody's eating that meal and Especially focusing on that's it. your training <clears throat> fuel most likely for your, Sets your up main session. The stage. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you've just come off of sleep and then that whole business about Olympians waking up at six in the morning is baloney. Like nobody does. Everyone sleeps until they wake up. So yeah, yeah that, that whole crap about hitting the alarm clock at 5am. No, unless that's if not you do thing. that and you like go quick, do some, and then you come back you and like fall asleep again. for four more yeah. hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we would all get up kind of around seven eight in the morning and then breakfast would, would take till nine yeah uh, you know just cooking everything so yeah i mean i would have a dozen eggs and uh, a bunch of meat and oatmeal and yogurt and cereal oh, a couple sure. bowls of cereal yeah. and that would be it would, that takes you an hour <laughs> to yeah eat no all kidding of that. and then to digest before you actually train mm-hmm. all of that food oh my and gosh. so then i would train and then i'd have to take a break in my training every couple hours to drink one of these shakes that had all these you know like 1500 calories per shake usually yeah it's wild um so for we did that for months and um yeah i gained like a pound a week uh, in muscle mass and like got balanced out and got my body fat Joe got slightly thick. Up. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, I mean, actually even just talking about like post, like Joe being a decathlete, like when you were pursuing as a master's athlete, there's mm-hmm. years ago, actually a buddy of mine sent it, a picture of me and he was like, dude, Joe's a beast. It was like 2017 or 16 when you were making a run for like the master's qualifier. Mm-hmm. 
and you had said and you that you were like eating like you were back in the day and you were training you know two sessions a day and mm-hmm. yeah you i mean you probably had at least 15 pounds mm-hmm. then on you are now like where you're yeah. at now yep. yeah yeah it's wild yeah so um yeah that was the food portion and and everybody was eating very clean and and eating high level nutrition supplementing a lot with that because uh, at that level of training you can't do it with just food yeah. yeah you just can't but at the same time like you know speaking of like nutter butters you, you're not gonna add 2,000 calories a day in chicken breast and broccoli True. like there, there comes a point where if you need calories you need dense you know caloric foods and whether it's a shake or it's a peanut butter scoop with some nutter butters like yeah. Yeah. it is what it is at that point you just need fuel yeah. Rob Wolf was just on Ben Bergeron's podcast really? and he was talking about like like he breaks down all the things and he's like paleo doesn't even really work that well for high level athletes. Like at a certain point, like your body needs a certain amount of carbohydrates and you cannot like eat clean in order to get the amount that a elite level crossfitter Dan Bailey said that marathon runner needs years ago. Yeah. You can't get all your calories from chicken and broccoli. It's true though. Like, I mean, if you're training at that level, there's no way it's interesting how like, if you were to have a conversation without the context of knowing something is an Olympian, someone is an Olympian, the line between being like mentally ill compulsive and like elite performer is so thin. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to ask about the mental side next mm-hmm. of, of these athletes and then trying to transition out of that world into what you call like civilian life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> to, to piggyback even onto what you just said, I mean, I had a therapist friend that I was speaking to years after the decathlon and, and dealing with some things in my life. And one of the breakwater moments for me was hearing him say, Joe, do you really believe that training six to eight hours a day, six days a week for 10 years is healthy? Yeah. That you really believe that that's a healthy mind <laughs> yeah. that was able to do that? Yeah. He said, no, you were simply doing something incredibly unhealthy that was being rewarded and approved by the society. Yeah. yeah. Like we, we reward that behavior by calling them Olympians and putting a wreath around their head and giving them a medal over their neck. But there's nothing mentally healthy yeah about that pursuit yeah other than it's pursuing something healthy in an unhealthy way yeah Yeah. i guess maybe the better word to say is it's not balanced no it's not a balanced life in any way but you can't be balanced if you're going to pursue that level of success absolutely not yeah you cannot be balanced and i i I, again i would bet that that probably translates to a lot of things not just in sport as well i mean you look at these business moguls sure like they didn't get there from working you know eight to four going home and whatever like putting other people first yeah like <laughs> yeah, there's, exactly. uh, there's so much sacrifice and so much that you don't see that is unhealthy habits that got them to the success and then you know they make money and whatever absolutely or get a medal around their neck there are elements of obsession that involve pursuing greatness like so that. what was it like getting you know getting out of that world and re-entering like normal life how, how was that uh transition Oof. Well, it was rough. I mean, first of all, you've been you've been living with people pursuing greatness and we talked about what that looks like and what that kind of human being looks like and how exciting and amazing and interesting they are. Uh, but they're also, and this is a side note too, they're people who have mastered delayed gratification. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the biggest differences that separates an Olympian from a normal civilian is their, the Olympian's capacity for delayed gratification. They have had to see a goal ahead of them that might be four, six, eight, ten years away, and they've given up things in the short term for that long-term goal 
and most of the people that I knew that ever had a medal hung around their neck delayed their gratification better than their competitors, set up goals and, and processes and ways to achieve the end goal that restricted their performance in those years leading up to it. Mm-hmm. So you, one of the best quotes I ever heard is, you can never be as good as you'll ever be by being as good as you can be. Like mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm just going to be as good as I can be this year, I'll never be as good as I could be That's interesting. 10 years down the road. And so learning that was a big part of learning the mind of an Olympian. Yeah, I can only imagine like having that conversation with your coach as well, being like, hey, um, we're not going to go for medals or anything this year. Mm-hmm. We're just going to. Or next year. Yeah, yeah, or, or the, the year, year after, after that. You were going, well, that's what my coach said to me. You're going to get beaten by your competitors for the next three years so you can beat them in the fourth year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not many people are willing to do that. Most people want the approval and to see how good they can get every year. But that's just like treading water. We had that with CrossFit early on in the yeah. early years of CrossFit as a gym when we were competing at regionals where I had to say to the athletes, hey, we've got a lot of work to do to become a great regional team. We're going to get beat by the other gyms in the area until they won't beat us anymore. Sure. And getting the athletes to buy into that, and sure enough, that's what happened, is eventually we had built a base that allowed us to then perennially beat all the other gyms yeah. in the area. But that didn't happen at first, and that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, yeah. especially so, in an ego-driven you know, sport, or, or I guess confidence-driven sport as well. Yeah. Like it's not fun for an alpha athlete to, to put their ego aside and take fifth place when they think they should be taking first. Yeah. Like that's not fun. Yep. And so what that looks like is you might spend a year on just technique development sure. and you're not working any on your speed and power because yeah. you know that that technique is the, is the gateway for that speed and power to get through to the implement. So you're spending it on technique and you're not getting strong and powerful. And then the next year you're spending it on just, you know, speed development and then strength and then the fourth year you're putting it all together yeah performing um that's neat it's all big pieces to a a very long puzzle mm -hmm. um i have to wrap this up because i have a hard stop but i guess another thing in the future maybe in a few episodes or further down the line i would like to talk business i think would be pretty neat and i think joe has a lot of insight obviously just like to to the gym business in general but i would like to know what it was like to work with and again, this is for a future episode to work with the business owners or the coaches at the highest level that you trained with as well. Cause I think a lot of that probably translated to how you run your business now, hmm. um, and how you're able to help other businesses like ours, uh, maybe get better or, uh, or survive, I guess, in the world that we're living in now. But you got anything else? No, I it, I just like to I sit back and listen. Yeah, sponge. That, I always yeah with uh, like you and Fred. It's uh, I just I even struggle to come up with questions half the time because you guys are just f- full of stuff and I can just listen to you talk. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for coming on again. You bet. Yeah. We'll see. Is he we'll going to break his Season old two. record? <laughs> yeah. We'll see. That's what we got to see. So awesome. Well, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bourbon and Balance Boys, out. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you, the listeners, so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate every single person that tunes in each and every week. And if you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, please help us organically grow the show by liking, commenting, sharing and saving our social media posts. If you do as many interactions as possible on our social media posts, that helps other people who don't see our content, see it more easily on 
social media, kind of cheating the algorithm. So once again, thank you so much for listening and stay balanced.